pray for a moment. Lord, thank you this morning as we enter into this beautiful worship today. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to speak through the Scriptures and through my words. Come and speak to our hearts and our minds that we might be led to Jesus. It is in His name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. It's good to see you all this morning. Um, I'm glad to be back over. I, I think the last time I was scheduled to come through here, something happened. I don't know if the whole staff went into quarantine or what, but it feels like it's been longer than I would uh, generally like. Um, today we continue in our preaching series entitled The Call of God. And during this epiphany season, we have been focusing on the reality that God is a God who calls God is a God who calls, and this is not sort of an ancillary theme of the Bible. It's actually central. God calls, and that's been the experience not only of the people in Scripture, but of people all throughout history. God calls, and not simply in the abstract, but God calls in the specific. God calls you. God calls me. God calls us. God calls people to himself. When the famous 19th century evangelist D.L. Moody was just starting out in his ministry, he heard a preacher make this statement. The world has yet to see what God can do with one person fully surrendered to him. The world has yet to see what God can do through one person fully surrendered to him. That night, as Moody went back and was in his room praying, he, he said, by God's grace, I will be that person. In other words, I will yield my life, I will surrender, as we sing in that song, all to you, Lord. And his life had a huge impact, not only on the world, but on the church, and that continues to be felt today. Now, God's call isn't just for pastors or evangelists or missionaries or whoever you think of. Uh, God's call is for everyone. And it always has two parts to it. God calls to us, so everybody say, to me. And God calls to us for the sake of others. So say for others. The way I always remember it, because I need simple things to latch on to, is God calls to me for others. He calls to me for others. He calls to you for the sake of other people. He does call us to himself, but there's always purpose in that calling. And that call has to do with the lives of the people around us the lives of the people in this world. Now, last week we saw Jesus beginning his ministry. He's going about the region of Galilee, um, all around that area of the Sea of Galilee, and he's proclaiming the gospel. Uh, it's not life hacks. It's not tips and, and tricks for, you know, improvement. It, it's good news. Is that me? Nope. Sometimes I bring my phone in, so it's liable to be me. I don't know. That could be the Lord. If it is, answer it. Um, So it's not life hacks, right? It's not tips and and techniques that Jesus has given. He's giving gospel good news. It's an in-breaking event. And the event that he's speaking about is that God's kingdom has come. And so he's encouraging people to realign themselves with this message and with him in particular as the one who uniquely brings the kingdom in. Realign your lives. Believe that it can really be true. And then he says to those first fishermen, follow me and I will make you become something different. I'll make you become catchers of people. If you follow, then I'll change you. I'll transform you. I'll shape you. 
And I'll give you a purpose beyond yourselves that has to do with other people. The question for us today is what gives us or what gives Jesus the right to call? What gives him the right to call people, to call us? What is it that Jesus has that gives him the right? And the answer that Mark gives us in the gospel today is it's his authority. It's the authority of Jesus that gives him the right to call. And so what we're going to see as we look at the text is that Jesus spoke with authority, and that's what astounded people. And Jesus acted with authority, and that's what startled people, because Jesus was and Jesus is the ultimate authority. And we would say an ultimate authority with a capital A, the ultimate authority. So I'll go back to the text in verse 21. They went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. The people were amazed by his words, not simply because he was a good storyteller, and he was, not simply because he was eloquent or had a speaking gift. They were amazed at the authority of his words, the authority that they conveyed. What they were used to were the scribes. The, the people who were simply passing on what other teachers had said with no lived experience of God. And so it often probably sounded to them a lot like, you know, Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 wah. Right. And if you've ever had a teacher like that, you know how miserable that can be. It's, I'd rather like watch paint dry than have to endure that kind of just static What they were doing was they were passing on tradition alone. This teacher says that, this other teacher says this. There was no wonder in their words. There was no love for God. There was no mystery in what they were saying. There was no power. There was no authority because they weren't necessarily speaking about God's glory in a way that changed hearts and changed lives. And so Jesus emerges on the scene and he's speaking authoritatively. Right? He doesn't, what he does is he takes the Bible and he uses the Bible to show, well, to show about himself. He points it to himself as the one to whom the Bible speaks and speaks of. The Bible is pointing toward him. And he does this over and over throughout his ministry. That's what always rattled people. Um, you remember at the end of the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 24, after his resurrection, he's walking down the road to Emmaus with those two disciples. And he begins to speak, and we're, we're told this, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So when he speaks, he's showing how the Bible is all about him. Now, at that time, they had the Old Testament, not the New And so taking the Old Testament, he's showing them how it's all about him. God is speaking. God is speaking about him in the pages of the scriptures because he is God's word. He is God's message to the world. But even more than that, he also speaks with the authority of the author as the one who wrote the text, if you will. That word author in the original language means from or out of the original stuff. So as Jesus speaks, he's not just speaking about another subject matter. He's not speaking about religion. He's not clarifying something that people already basically knew. 
He's not passing on information alone. He's speaking as the originator. He's speaking as the author, the author himself. And when he does that, what happens is their hearts begin to be exposed. That's what always happens when Jesus speaks. The hearts of people get exposed. And so what happens is their needs start to rise up. And their hopes and their longings and their desires and their fears, the the real stuff of life, life where we actually live it. And of course, their sin begins to be exposed and the areas where they're broken, the areas where they haven't been able to believe or where they've shut their lives down out of disappointment for the things that they have suffered. Whatever is in us, as Jesus speaks, it begins to come to light. It begins to be exposed, not unto shame, not unto destruction, but because he desires to bring us to life. And to himself. And so when Jesus talks to you, he offers you life. He offers restoration. He offers hope. He offers the things that your heart truly needs. He offers correction at times. He offers direction. Sometimes he offers complete and total healing of everything within you, freeing you from evil, freeing you from death, connection to the heart of God himself. Of course, Jesus said that he, he never spoke on his own. He only spoke the words that the Father was speaking, that the Father was giving him because he and the Father were one. Again, he's speaking as that ultimate authority, as the author himself. And it rattled people. And it startled them. So we go back to the text. Verse 23, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. So they're sitting in church, On a Saturday morning, and the man cries out, or the demon threw the man, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him, and they were amazed. They were astounded. So that they question among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So as he's speaking, and as their hearts are being exposed, as what is actually going on within them, the stuff we carefully keep behind our masks, right? Suddenly this demon begins to manifest. Now notice, it's not a guy out in the back alley. This is not, you know, some drug user or some drunk in the gutter. He's not deranged or mentally ill. The guy's in the synagogue and probably everybody knows it. He's sitting in a pew and he looks just like everyone else. And in some way, and the text doesn't tell us how, his life has been opened up to darkness, to the demonic, to an unclean spirit, which has taken up residence within him. Right? In his life, in his person, in his body, exercising a level of control over him. Now, nowadays, a lot of people just sort of dismiss this, these parts of the scriptures, right? And you may not know what to do with this this morning. This may be outside of your experience. You may not even believe in this sort of thing. You know, Thomas Jefferson said, we need to just cut out all those parts of the scripture. 
and just keep that morally, you know, the moral stuff. We need to get rid of all the the supernatural elements. But I'll say this as as a pastor and as a rector, this is absolutely real. I mean, I've experienced this in the lives of people. I've seen it overseas in the mission field. But here's the thing. I've seen it here in our own communities, in the lives of people who look just like you and just like me. People can be opened up to the demonic. It can happen because they dabble in the occult or they get actually involved in the occult. It can happen through various forms of spirituality that aren't actually Christianity. It can happen through drug use, through sexual sin, through violations, through traumas, and through abuse. It can even happen through pride. It can happen through rebellion, through excessive anger and rage. That's why the Bible warns us, don't let the sun go down on your anger, lest you give the devil a foothold in your lives. An access point, an entryway, a way to engage you and to get you out of sync with the Lord. We don't want to give the enemy an advantage. We're warned that our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, there's a different level of access that comes for a non-Christian and a Christian. And I'm just going to make that clear for a moment. A Christian cannot be possessed because you're already filled with the Spirit of God. But you can be harassed. You can be oppressed, especially in areas of your life that might be not in the light. Someone who doesn't have the spirit of Christ in them can be taken over in the case that we see here of possession in the synagogue. So so it's a little different how the enemy has access to different kinds of people. There are people who willingly open their lives up to the demonic. And there are others, and this is often what happens with, I know, young people along the way, maybe even some of you or friends, you dabble in things, right? And doorways get opened. And we want to get those things closed and shut down. So this demon shouts through this man's voice, I know who you are, Jesus. You're the Holy One of God. And what does Jesus do? Well, he doesn't, he doesn't deny it. He acts authoritatively. He rebukes the demon. He commands the demon. He orders the demon to do what he says. There's a story from World War II about Erwin Rommel, who was a German general, who was known as the Desert Fox in North Africa. But before he served there as a commander of that whole front, um, he was a commanding officer in the invasion of France in 1940. And he was in Belgium, and he was uh, in his command car driving up to the front to make observation one day to see what kind of movement was going on. And as he went through those Belgian hills, Um, His car came around this turn and a truckload of enemy soldiers were suddenly right in front of him. And without missing a beat, he jumped out of the car and in a very stern voice, he began to say to those men, you are now prisoners of the German army. Just drive your truck in that direction and you'll be processed immediately. And the soldiers in the truck nodded their heads in agreement and they moved to comply and the truck went and then Rommel was shocked as another truck followed behind 20 trucks of soldiers went and ended up surrendering because this one man had spoken authoritatively. 
Now, when Jesus spoke and acted with authority, the demons had to submit and obey. And why? Because whenever light breaks in, the darkness has to flee. Because evil, this is so important, evil is not safe in the presence of God. You see, evil must flee in the presence of God Himself. And of course, this is part of Jesus' revelation of Himself as the ultimate, capital A, authority. He's showing who He really is as He engages with the powers of darkness. Now, He doesn't deny His identity. As the demon says, you're the Holy One of God. He doesn't say, no, I'm not. You've got the wrong guy, right? You're mistaken. I'm just a wise man or another teacher among many. I'm just an example for the world to follow, though he is all of those things. What did he do? He silenced the demon. He basically said, no more. You've got to be quiet. Because he wasn't going to let the demon be his press secretary. Jesus can speak for himself. The Spirit testifies to Jesus. The Father testifies to Jesus. The Scripture testifies to Jesus. Jesus testifies to Jesus. But he's not going to give the demons that kind of leverage. I mean, the demon's unclean, and he is clean. I mean, he's the kind of clean that when he walks into a dirty situation, that dirty situation doesn't affect him. He changes it. The demon is unholy, and he is the Holy One of God. All capital letters. The demon desecrates people, and Jesus is the one consecrated by the Father to die for the sin of the world, to break the power of darkness, to bring new life. The demon takes captives, and Jesus sets captives free. The demon wants to steal, kill, and destroy, and Jesus has come that we might have the kind of life that our hearts know and desire is possible. Life reunited with God. Because Jesus, of course, is the ultimate authority with a capital A. All right, so let's, let's see if we can take the text, and even though many parts of it may seem far away from our everyday experience, how do we begin to apply it? Like, what do you do with a text like this? Because we don't want to just go, well, that was interesting. Like, Lord, what are you showing us and what are you speaking to me today through your word, by your spirit, through what Jesus is showing us? Well, I, I, would, I would say at the, at the very first place, are you learning to listen for Jesus's authoritative voice in your life? He doesn't tend to shout. I mean, I guess he can, but I, I've never experienced that. The scripture says of the voice of God, it's a still, small voice. It's a quiet voice. It's actually the voice of silence, which is really interesting. He speaks internally, sometimes with words, often with nudges and promptings. Are you learning to listen for his voice in the way he speaks to you? Because just as we're all very unique and very different in the way we've been wired and made, God knows how to uniquely speak to you whether it's through that quiet voice or through a song that you hear, through something going on in nature around you, He knows how to speak to you. If you're not sure or or you don't know, well, the steps you take are to make space. This is where the busyness of our lives 
really works against the relationship with the Lord. We have to make space for silence. We have to make space to listen. We have to become attentive. A.W. Tozer, the famous pastor, used to say, God tells the person who cares. Or are you making space because you care to know what God has and wants and wills for your life? Silence, solitude, listening, time, making yourself available. Those are your steps. Of course, I would ask, are you reading his words in the scripture and allowing those words to shape and restore your life? That's what they do. You know, like 3 a.m. is a good time to let those words be restoring you when you can't sleep or you're anxious or all the problems of life are piling up, allowing those words to bring restoration, the words of Scripture, those things that are outside of you but that have been written down for you so that you might know what he's like and how to discern that speaking voice. Are you allowing his word to shape you and restore you? Not simply reading the Bible as a rule book, right? as a way to keep God happy or at least to keep him off your back, which I think there's a temptation for many people and many Christians to do. But are you allowing that word to cause wonder to be restored to your heart? Something bigger than, well, the pretty good life most of us lead. But the wonder of God, the mystery of God, the majesty of God. Are you recognizing that It's a love letter that he's written because of his love for you. Well, if not, then I would suggest you open it up and ask him to show you, Lord, would you restore wonder to my heart? Would you restore the bigness of who you are, the the grandeur and the majesty? Would you help me to know you truly as you are, not as the small caricatures of you that we often have in place? Of course, that's where life groups are so helpful to have others around us reading with us and speaking and helping us discern. And I know so many of you are in life groups. Now, if you have areas in your life that feel like they're really stuck, I mean, think about the guy there, the guy who was in the synagogue. He was going to church, if you will, synagogue, and he was absolutely stuck. He couldn't get himself out of that situation. It may not be that your life is captive to a demon, but there are probably some places where you have habits, where you have hurts, where you have hang-ups, where you're stuck and you can't get yourself free. I would encourage you to to honestly come before God and let those things be exposed in his presence. Not because he's going to smite you, but because his, his will for you is that you would have freedom. His desire is that he might give you life. So in the place of defeat, he may need to restore some dignity. And in a place where you've only known loss, his desire may well be to let you know this love that surpasses your mere understanding. It has to be experienced. In a place of fear or anxiety to know love or peace. In the case of being stuck, 
like a place where you're, you know, a sin has you, an area of brokenness has you, where you can't get out, you probably need somebody else. I don't mean that God's not enough. I just mean that through honesty, shame and darkness starts to break down. It loses its grip and its power as we begin to allow ourselves to become real and vulnerable to other people. And often then what happens, we need someone else to pray for us. We may need to confess sin, confess stuckness, confess that place to another. And of course, obviously, Jonathan would love to do that and be that for you. I would love to do that and be that for you. Someone in your life group, someone who you know will love you as you are, not just as you think you should be, and who can be pointing you towards the Lord. We often need healing mediated through other people. Lastly, let me just say this. We'll take a lesson from the demon. And it is not often I say that in church. It knew who Jesus was. It had great theology. It knew the doctrine. But knowledge is not enough. Knowledge is not salvific. It doesn't save us. That's just information. In fact, knowing about Jesus, but not submitting to Jesus, was agonizing to the demon. Salvation always comes by faith, through trust, by yielding, by allowing God in, by yielding yourself to Jesus, who is Lord of heaven and earth. The one to whom one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess, you are the Lord. And it may be well, it may be time to stop playing religion and invite him to be Lord. Lord of your life. How do you do that? Well, by submitting yourself to Jesus. Yielding your life, your family, your career, your finances, your future to the one who loves you. To the one who has proven his love. Demonstrated his love. How? Through the cross. And as we celebrate Eucharist today, we'll, we'll in a tangible and mysterious way celebrate what He's done for us. It may be time to yield to His love and His Lordship. Let's pray. Lord, You died that we might be restored. You came that we might have life. You speak that we might know Your heart for us. And you call that we might be yours and we might, well, we might be yours for the sake of others around us. We thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for your authoritative voice, your authoritative actions. Thank you that you are the authority with a capital A. We pray, Lord, that you would remove our fear of you as we gaze at your love for us through the cross of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.